0: Your podcast on the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 25, Still Warm, The Murder of Marianne Nichols. I'm Jonathan Mangus, coming to you from Topeka, Kansas, and joining me on the show today is the author of the first Jack the Ripper victim photographs, Robert McLaughlin from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, the former moderator of Casebook.org, Allie Ryder, and the proprietor of JTRForums.com, Howard Brown. I welcome you all to the show today and Robert McLaughlin is going to go over a little bit about the life of Marianne Nichols 120 years ago next week she was found murdered in Buck's Row Go ahead Robert
1: Polly Nichols was uh, born Marianne Walker on uh, August 26th 1845 at uh, Shoe Lane in the city of London Uh, Her father, Edward, was a blacksmith, and her mother's name was Caroline Webb. Uh, By the time of the 1861 census, um, uh, her mother, uh, Caroline, was dead, and we're not quite sure yet uh, of why. Uh, Her death certificate hasn't been found. Marianne Nichols um, married uh, William Nichols, a printer, on Saturday, January sixteenth, eighteen 1864, at St. Bride's Church in uh, Fleet Street. And uh, over the next uh, 15 years, they had uh, five children. In the 18s, I think it's about 1876, uh, they moved into a, a new uh, Peabody building in uh, Duchy Street. And uh, they had four rooms there. Uh, seemed to be living quite comfortably. Uh, the place rented for six shillings and eight pence a week. And uh, Polly was even uh, working at a printer shop and earning, uh, I think, 30 shillings a week at the time. At this time, it also appears that uh, William uh, her husband uh, was carrying on an affair uh, with the daughter of a widowed neighbor, a woman named Rosetta Halls, who was uh, or Rosetta walls, I think, uh, who was um, uh, nursing uh, Mary Nichols. At this time, there's a, a little bit of a split and with with Ann and William, and they they'd split up many times. Uh, the couple reconciled in eighteen seventy seven, and uh, they took cheaper rooms in the same Peabody buildings. So it doesn't seem that the circumstances were as well for them financially. Uh, Marianne uh, finally left William for good around Easter of 1880. And she left all the children behind. Their oldest son, uh, Edward, uh, went to live with his grandfather. And uh, he didn't, uh, I don't think, spoke with his father again until after Kelly's murder in 1888, according to him. Uh, um,
0: Nichols. Sorry.
1: Yeah. Uh, Polly was uh, in and out of Lambeth Workhouse uh, on Renfrew Road uh, throughout the 80s. Uh, She lived for a spell with her father and uh, also with a blacksmith named Thomas Drew for a little bit. Uh, The last time uh, her father uh, saw his daughter alive was at the funeral of his son, Polly's brother, um, Edward Jr., in June of 1886. He'd accidentally set his uh, hair on fire with a paraffin lamp. And uh, he suffered severe burns, and he died as a result of those burns. Uh, Coroner Langham of the city of London, who uh, conducted the inquest, ruled an accidental death. And you might recall his name because he later conducted the inquest uh, for Catherine Hiddows. And in 1888, uh, Polly wrote to her father on May 12th uh, to let him know that she had found a maid position with a very respectable family, that they were teetotalers and that she thought she would get on well. And that was the last uh, correspondence he had with her. And uh, not long after the letter, she had absconded uh, from the family, stealing clothing worth about three pounds, ten shillings. From this point onward, Polly uh, seems to move from lodging house to lodging house until the time of her death. Now, on the night of her death, August 30th, she was turned away from the lodging house at 18 Thrall Street for not having the four-pence for a bed, where she told the lodging housekeeper, you know, I'll soon get my DOS money, see what a jolly bonnet I've got now. And so she goes out into the night, and, and uh, obviously, you know, looking for the four pence. Early that morning, Friday, August 31st, 1888, at 2.30 a.m., uh, she runs into Emily Holland, a fellow lodger at uh, 18 Thrall Street, um, at uh, uh, Osborne Street, Round Brick Lane. Polly, takes Emily, uh, Polly tells Emily that uh, she spent her DOS money uh, three times over that day and Emily implores her to come back to her with the lodging house. Uh, Polly refuses, saying that uh, she'll soon get her DOS money, and she wanders off towards Whitechapel Road, and that was the last time she was seen alive, other than by her killer. Now, at about 3.40 a.m., a carman named Charles Cross was walking through Bucks road to going to work, and uh, he saw on the opposite side of the road in the stable gates um, near the board school, uh, he saw what he thought was initially a tarpaulin. Uh, he crossed over and realized that it was the body of a woman. Uh, he was soon joined by uh, another carman named Robert Paul. And the two of them had a good look. And, yeah, it definitely was a woman. Uh, she was lying on her back. Her skirts had been pulled up to her waist. Uh, Cross thought that she was dead. Paul was not so sure. It was too dark to see her injuries. And uh, I, th- I think uh, it was it was uh, Cross who, who made a little attempt to uh, pull down her uh, her skirts. And uh, they decided to continue on their way to work and tell the first policeman they saw about it, uh, what had happened. And they encountered P.C. Misen uh, at the junction of Henbury Street and uh, Old Montague Street. Um, While they were doing this, uh, at about 3.45 in the morning, uh, P.C. Neal, was on his regular beat, he passed through Buck's Row, as he'd done 30 minutes before. Uh, But this time, he'd come across the body uh, body of Polly Nichols. And uh, with the aid of his lantern, he saw that she was dead. And he flashed his light, which was seen by PC Thane in uh, Brady Street. Uh, Neil sent uh, Thane to fetch Dr. Llewellyn. Uh, PC Mizen, uh, who Cross and Paul alerted, he arrived on the scene, and uh, PC Neil sent him to get further assistance from Bethnal Green Police Station and to bring back an ambulance. Um, Neil made a few inquiries, like at Essex Wharf across the street, uh, and uh, there were some other inquiries. Nobody in the street seemed to have heard anything. Uh, the stable gate where uh, Pauly Nichols was uh, found was locked. Uh, Doctor Dwellin arrived uh, shortly after 4 a.m. Uh, did a cursory examination. Uh, he pronounced life extinct. Um, he noticed the throat wounds, but he failed to notice the abdominal uh, injuries. Uh, the body was moved to the removed to the mortuary in uh, Old Montague Street. Meisen and Kirby went to the mortuary. While Fane and Neil uh, waited for Inspector Spratling, and when Sp- Inspector Spratling arrived, he went to the mortuary. He saw the state of Nichols: the abdominal mutilations, because uh, there was a jagged cut. Of course, the tooth slashes to uh, her throat. Um, there were several small incisions. Her intestines were protruding. Now, it was, of course, not as brutal as uh, later murders of uh, Chapman or Eddowes or Kelly, but it was still quite brutal. And uh, so Inspector uh, Spradling uh, rousted the Llewellyn from his bed for a second time that night um, so he could uh, inspect the injuries. And uh, that basically takes us up to the point where she was found.
0: Polly Nichols is widely considered the first victim of Jack the Ripper of the canonical Five or McNaughton Five or however you want to refer to it. Her murder led... To- to the naming of the suspect Leather Apron as really the first press-frenzied suspect whose uh, moniker Leather Apron would be replaced by the name Jack the Ripper. Now, let's take um, the night of her murder kind of... um, and chronology, there's and once we get to the actual discovery of her body is where it gets pretty confusing. but there are some missing times also. Um, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong here. She went to the uh, lodging house at um, 18 Thrall Street around 1:30 a.m. She may have been visiting the frying pan um, public house before then, and then um, there's an hour between when she left the lodging house with her jolly bonnet and the time that she is seen on Osborne Street by Holland, at which location Emma Smith was brutally attacked four months prior. I'm not sure if Robert knows. What time did the pub close? The the
1: frying pan? um... About 2 a.m.? It probably would have closed sometime around then. You know, it, it's, it's probable she could have been searching for a client in the street, maybe found a client, and just spent it on drink. Uh, before she, like, after she can't find her DOS money and before she meets up with Emily Holland.
0: Right. Okay. She was pretty inebriated when she, when she um, saw Miss Holland on the street. Then we have a missing hour and 15 minutes... No one saw um, Polly Nichols, although the uh, track from where she was last seen alive at 2.30 to where uh, her body was discovered would have taken her only about 15 minutes to walk. It was about a half a mile away. The, the nature of her injuries, while Robert's right, it, uh, are not as, as uh, brutal as Eddowes or, Ch- or Chapman they do somewhat compare to the injuries sustained by Martha Tabham. And I don't know, and and, and one, one of the things we got to realize when we talk about this case is the murder of Mary Nichols is that no official inquest report survived. We're left only with press reports of the inquest. So, um, and none of the official doctor's notes survived from this case. Again, we're left with just what was reported by the press. But it does mention um, her injuries when they discovered her abdominal wound while in the mortuary that her intestines were protruding from the wound. Mm -hmm. What that exactly entailed is anyone's guess. In the case of Chapman and Eddowes, the murderer removed the entrails from the wound. So, in the case of Polly Nichols, maybe it was just something that the the killer, if it was Jack the Ripper, the same murderer of Chapman and Eddowes, didn't have time to actually uh, pull the entrails out of the wound he created in her abdomen.
2: Or Uh, it just might have been something as simple as there's an incision in the abdominal cavity and between getting her off the street and back to the morgue... uh, stuff happens, and, you know, her entrails began to protrude on their own. Being that there wasn't much of a thorough examination on the scene, we can't really tell whether that was just, you know, a result of, I mean, if you slit your abdominal, whether the intent is there or not in manipulating the body, positioning the body, getting it off the street onto a conveyance, (laughs) off a conveyance into the morgue, you know, there's a high degree of likelihood that things will spill out if it's not, you know, right. manipulated in such a way that if they're, if they're looking for it not to happen. But I sincerely doubt that, you know, they would have taken all that much care in handling the body to, you know, to preserve it in its found state.
1: Well, especially when at the time they didn't know of the abdominal mutilations until after they got it to the mortuary.
2: Right, Exactly
0: so uh, where do we want to go um, well
1: why not start with the last 70 minutes of uh, the last 70, 75 minutes of Paulie Nichols' life
3: exactly, or the conflicting time time discrepancies we have um, Constable Meisen saying that he was approached at 4.15 um, on that night by cross does anybody want to run with that
0: well, let's let's go. Let's start a little bit before that. Um, okay. She, um, we have Miss Holland seeing her at two thirty, and she's pretty definite about that time. And then we have Cross coming across her body at three forty-five, three roughly three, sometime between three forty 3.40 and three forty-five. So again, we assume that there were no pubs open. General consensus may be that she was looking, like she had said, to to score some uh, DOS money for for her bed for the night. So it takes her, according to the official record, an hour and 15 minutes to wander around, ending up a half a mile away from where she was last seen.
2: Well, if you think about it, If there's no pubs open, I mean, let's face it, the the, the main place where a prostitute's going to get her the majority of her business is probably going to be in a drinking establishment. And when we talk about a time discrepancy, it's not so much, you know, I can wander around my one block for an hour easily, but if she's on the prowl looking for someone to pay her for her time, and the pubs aren't open, you know... I, I doubt there's a, a you know a central calling for Johns you know you you kind of have to wander around and go up you know and and put yourself out there and just sort of wander hoping that you're going to stumble across somebody who is interested in what you have to sell.
1: Right. Well, well she headed towards Whitechapel Road, which is logical because Whitechapel Road is a major east-west thoroughfare, and presumably it would be a busy road. There would be people about. There would be men about. And uh, perhaps she could have tried to hustle up some business and was trying to hustle up some business.
2: And just because nobody says they saw her during that time, I mean, how many men are going to remember a casual prostitute on the street? So just because a woman was murdered that night, it's not necessarily that, you know, no one saw her during her stroll. It's just, you know, a matter of if you get approached by a prostitute on the street you're not automatic you're not you're probably if you're not interested in what she's offering you're probably not even going to look at her sufficiently to register what she looks like she's not going to make much of an impression on you to remember the next day so that reading in the newspaper a prostitute was killed on blah blah blah. you know you're not going to go oh that was the woman that approached me so you know the the sort of lost periods of time or whatever. I think it, it's very easy to just sort of throw those up to human nature. And, you know, it, if you're married or whatever, you're not going to want to say, yeah, I was out strolling the streets at, you know, some god awful hour of the morning and was being approached by prostitutes and put yourself out there if it's not absolutely
0: necessary.
3: True. And there's no guarantee that she actually did pick up a client, is there?
0: Mm. No, she was found with no money. Not, you know, whether.
3: And she was also found in a very suspicious location in front of a locked stable. Uh, it seems to me that if she had picked up a client, that she and the client would have liaised in some area with some seclusion. And there's certainly no seclusion on a sidewalk, which uh, well, maybe we can get into later on, the possibility that she was blitzed. She was killed on the spot with, with no attempt or no client whatsoever.
0: Now, she was walking... It would have been in a westerly direction down Bucks Row, which runs parallel to Whitechapel High Street. Just a couple blocks over, though. In the direction she's heading, I mean, does anyone have any ideas of of where she could have been going? I'm rubbish
2: with 21st century geography. Forget asking me about London in 1888.
1: Well, my question... Uh, well my question was is like
0: on the prowl uh, on the prowl for a client um as she was walking down secluded bucks row
1: what what if she encounters uh, her client let's say in in whitechapel road and, uh, and let's say close to woods buildings um if anyone has a map you can just walk up uh, woods buildings to winthrop street uh go around the corner of the board school and that puts you right at the gates it probably would have been a close, secluded place if, if uh, she's outside of Woods Buildings uh, in Whitechapel Road. It only takes uh, less than a minute to get there. It's, it's right quick. Um, they wouldn't have wanted to do anything in Winthrop Street. She wouldn't have, wouldn't have wanted to take a client to Winthrop Street, uh, which is the next block up from Whitechapel Road because uh, the slaughterhouses uh, that were working at night, it was, it was too busy. Uh, Buck's Row was very, very dark. Um, so, so dark, in fact, that, you know, on the opposite side of the street, uh, uh, when Cross first comes across it, he, th- he thinks it's a tarpaulin on the other side of the street. That's how dark it is.
0: Right, but um, going by your theory, she would have passed by the man who was monitoring the waterworks project on the opposite side of the board school on Winthrop Street, wouldn't have she? With her client? Patrick yeah, Mulsha. that was uh,
1: Patrick Malshaw. But see, Malshaw admitted to dozing at many times during the night. And it, it sounds like he would have been an easy man to get by.
2: Well, and even if you're not dozing, you know. I, I always you, find it interesting that people say, oh, well, nobody saw her or nobody saw him in these long periods of time. And, it, like, again, it's just very possible that... You know, you look away, you blink, and then when you add in the whole dozing aspect, but you know, it's not necessarily, we can't really make assumptions based on what we think should have happened. Well, obviously, if you're working on this corner and somebody walks by, you're going to notice them. Well, no, you know, that's that's just not necessarily the case. And so, because we're very interested in it, and we think, oh, well, surely someone must have seen something, they may, may very well have seen something, and they just don't recognize at the time what they've seen, and... And he may have saw her, and why would you fix in your mind watching someone walk past you on a street? I mean, if you really think about it, we're looking at it, oh, it's murder, and it's it's exciting, and it's whatever. But for this gentleman, it's a night in his life, at very late in the evening, at a boring job, you know, or just, you know... I can't say if he thought it was boring or not, but a job, and you're there, and you do what you do, and who's to say that you're the type of person where the most minute and insignificant details attach themselves to your memory? Because to him, a woman walking by is the most minute and insignificant detail.
0: Right. I agree with you Allie and this is something also that just about this case in general that I that I kind of have questions about is that there is this um, idea that the the murderer was able to slip away unseen unheard and the press reports will say the public you know when they go house to house questioning no no one um there there is no information forthcoming from any of the residents well what, what We have to realize that that in this neighborhood of the East End, the level of cooperation between the public and the police at this time was poor, to put it nicely. So what's to say that the members of the public who were questioned would even be forthcoming with information to the police, um, with honest information? With swiftness and silentness of Jack the Ripper, you know, is predicated in large part upon... No one hearing or seeing anything. Right. Well, and that,
2: you know, that happens today. And it, it goes down to the very basic level of, you know, we always talk about people who want the limelight and they want to involve themselves in the murder trials. But, you know, that's from our particular perspective. And I would wager that there's a much larger por- percentage of a population, especially when you're looking at very desperate As you say, you know, poor people who don't have the best relationships with the police to start with, they may have just, you know, lived, thought it was best to live by the motto that keep your head down and your eyes closed, and even if you saw something, don't get involved. You didn't see anything.
3: True, and plus, if you missed, if you went to the inquest to serve as a witness, you missed a day's pay if you're a working class person, and that's a considerable chunk of change to those people.
1: And see, another another thing to consider as well is that. Whether they're connected or not, the Taber murder and the Nichols murder do share that thing in common that there are very few, if if at all, any witnesses. There are a time gap problem with both before the time that they're last seen alive and the time that they're found murdered. Uh, Both seem to be very private murders, uh, unlike the later murders where you have many more witnesses uh, coming forward. And perhaps that has to do with the crimes actually building up, that, that you have a series of murders happening and you have a, this hysteria happening, that from Chapman onwards you seem to get many, many more witnesses.
0: Another thing that we just don't have a lot of information to go on is in the Nichols case that uh, in comparison with Chapman is the number of injuries that Nichols received. There are very uh, generic reports of just several cuts, I think the most number that we have of wounds to her body are four. Th- but then there are these uh, several cuts to the lining of the stomach, a few stabs, which taken all of them together could look like up to uh, possibly a dozen cuts or stab wounds on Nick. Well, f- well, I mean, for me a, in the in the, a dozen in the isn't absence of thirty-nine, no. certainly. But still, it, if we if we have some some uh, a number over six stabs
3: and, well, the, me, and in
1: the absence of a of, of a post-mortem or in an inquest report i mean it's impossible to know
3: yeah right. yeah to me to me an issue within this the nichols murder is the position of the body it wasn't displayed as the chapman and eddowes murders were you know with her legs splayed and and the dress up in fact her dress was um, covering her waist if i'm not mistaken and uh, that's one reason why the um, Cross and Paul and Neil... And, well, actually, no one saw the wounds until they got into uh, the uh, mortuary.
0: Right. Her her dress was pulled up ab- above her knees, but, but her right. abdomen wasn't exposed.
1: But uh, Cross said he'd pulled down her skirt, that it was above her waist when he found her. But before her... he left the scene, he pulled it down for modesty's sake.
3: Right. And he was... Uh, There's one she report. Was, yeah, she was on her side, though, so... It's quite possible that it was, as you say, it was above her waist, and he couldn't have seen the mutilations. That's true.
1: And, and by the time Neil comes along, the, the the dress is further down, and you know nobody yeah. bothers to look. Yeah. But uh, going back to your point, uh, Howard, like I think, uh, I think Nichols uh, found a, a punter in Whitechapel Road and took him to the spot where she was murdered. Now you offer an alternative in a blitz attack. What? What exactly is your thought process with that?
3: Well, I think it could have been one of four things. Uh, the mainstream thinking is that she did pick up a client from somewhere from uh, uh, Brick Lane to Bucks Row. Um, it's quite possible that she wanted to sack out and she was in the process of trying to sleep on the street. There's 10,000 homeless people in Whitechapel at that time. Um possible she was trying to flee somebody from the bottom of the street, or she was simply blitzed. An all-out attack on the spot. I just have a problem with the gate, and that it was locked. And if she had been familiar with that neighborhood, Robert, um, that she would have known that that gate was locked, or the stables were locked, excuse me, and that she would have tried to find some place that offered seclusion. And that's why I I think that um, it's quite possible, since we don't know exactly what happened, that she was blitzed instead of her picking up a client. I
2: think John? that anything is is possible. Uh, she could have been blitzed. She could have been picking up a client. As far as if she knew the area, she would know the gates were locked. I'm not necessarily sure how that follows. I I, I think we again we're we're putting our own predispositions onto characters. I mean, I, I live in a neighborhood. I'm I'm very familiar with the neighborhood that I live in. But I'm trying to, you know, picture myself in a situation and would I automatically know a certain area is no-go, the gates are locked, or, you know, that, You know, and I'm just not sure why... Can you explain a little bit more about why you would presume that she would know just okay. because she lived in the area that those gates were locked? There might okay. be a piece that I'm missing.
3: Okay. Uh, let's, let's take the Chapman murder. It, it's the mainstream belief that Chapman led her killer to the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street. It's a mainstream belief that Eddowes lured her killer to the darkest part of the corner in Mitre Square. Um, we'll have to leave Kelly out of this because that was an indoor murder. And then we'll stride whether or not she's a Ripper victim or not. We'll leave that out. So you got the, the two almost definite Ripper victims, correct? Chapman and Eddowes leading their um, their client to the place where they were killed but in Nichols, i'm not necessarily sure that we could say that Are you i mean I there's to not many
2: presumptions at all i mean i'm really okay, one of those i, I okay, don't just, i don't like to go where i think well uh, very rarely do i say well i don't think she would have done that so i was just i was just wondering um what you know you presume that she would know the gates were locked and i was just wondering whether there was some piece i was missing in so far as that presumption that she would have known the gates were locked well, that I, I i'm just not familiar enough well, with and, okay, yeah. and also,
0: let me uh, ask Howard this also. Are, so are you saying that, uh, do you, I mean, obviously not all of the prostitutes in the East End had the same wish for privacy in conducting their business, if you think uh, Chapman, Letter Killer, back to ha- the backyard of Hambury Street, or Eddowes to the corner of Meter Square. Although, if the murderer um, was the same, in the Nichols case as the Chapman case and the Eddowes case. The question would be, why did he choose that spot to murder her out on the sidewalk, as opposed to waiting until she found or suggesting that she find a more secluded place or something like You know what I'm saying?
3: Right. Uh, um, I'm, not, I'm not exactly familiar with Essex Wharf. Robert Nally might be. Weren't there places around the wharf that they could have gone um, a little side uh, side well, street or anything? No, it's not a wharf
1: per se. Essex Wharf is a building, was a building, and uh, <sighs> true. Yeah, and you had cottages on uh, on on that side of the street. But see, this this didn't seem to bother like the Ripper in terms of uh, earlier murders. Uh, you know how many people were about, or what buildings were about, and, and even. Uh, it doesn't seem to even bother uh, the women. Like uh, Chapman did go into the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street, whether she led him there, whether Jack led him there. And uh, same with Edos. She went into Mitre Square, whether she was the leader or the follower. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's the same thing, uh, y- you know, uh, with uh, Nichols. Uh, Nichols was murdered where she was found. There was no evidence that she was dumped there in any capacity. So, right. whether she led the murder or, or he led her, uh, that's where they were going to do business. Man. And, uh, you know, I think it's dark enough. Uh, the street is really dark. It's secluded enough. It's quiet enough. And like the other murders, they, uh, it, it seems to miss the police beats, you know, which which tends, for me anyway, to suggest that, that Nichols uh, led him there. But also, I was wanted to go back to your point, Howard, uh, with... The locked gates. Um, it, it's also possible. Let's say maybe uh, that Nichols took clients there in the past, and maybe the gate was unlocked in the sure. past at That's some point. true. And you know, as far as
2: privacy, I'm sorry. As as far as privacy goes, you know, one of the things I'm always astounded by when I read, you know, historical accounts, or you have, you know, families of. 10 living in a one room thing and the parents keep getting pregnant and you know with my 21st century not exactly exhibitionist uh, tendencies I always wonder like how in the world do the parents manage to keep getting pregnant with six kids in one bedroom when everybody's sharing a bed
3: that's and a I, good point Allie that's a really good point
2: we don't necessarily have the same views of sex that the victorians did so you know maybe it's a big deal
1: end of privacy yes yeah.
2: exactly definitely not for privacy
0: right um That's back, good point. yes it is uh, back to uh robert was mentioning how he seemed to avoid the police beats let's talk about uh the discovery of her body and the timing involved Um, The discovery of her body by Charles Cross, following that, the approach of of, uh, P.C. Neal. Again, there's this hour and 15 minutes between she was last seen until she was discovered um, at 3.45 a.m. Cross claimed to have um, came across her body at around 3.40 Almost immediately, Paul, was uh, who was headed in the same direction as, as Cross, which would have been going walking east. Down walking by, west. Walking they're west. Actually, yeah, they're
1: walking west. <laughs> oh, sorry.
0: Paul almost immediately uh, came upon Cross. And, and I know Howard wants to talk about this. So why, why don't you take us through some of the chronology of the discovery of her body and, uh, and then the and subsequent police involvement on the scene.
3: Yeah, I, I think everyone else knows about it already. There, there, is, there are some discrepancies, and I think those are due, in fact, that if we don't have the original trial transcripts, we have the Times interpretation of them. Uh, we have uh, P.C. Neal and Cross coming across the body at virtually the same time. Neal is adamant that it was at 345, and he said, as Ali mentioned before, the discrepancies in, in body temperature, he says that her upper arm was quite warm. And then we have Meisen who says that he was approached by Cross at three forty-five, but he probably meant—he pro- would you people agree? I think he probably meant that it was Robert Paul that came up upon him when he was on Hanbury Street. So we have a, we have a big gap. We have a big problem with the time. John. Um. um well.
0: Uh, yeah. Just to elaborate on that. Okay. So Cross. Um. Cross was walking down the street sees what he think is a, is is something underneath a tarp. Right. Crosses the street to investigate. Realizes it it's a woman lying there. There's a question of whether he actually got up close to the point where he was leaning over the body at the time that Robert Paul approached or if he, it was just him, just barely crossing the street. And I know this is may may sound, um, you know, like we're uh, we're nitpicking, but it, I think it is important because. Well, according.
1: We, go ahead. Well, see, according according to Cross's testimony uh, in in the newspaper, uh, uh, one of the newspapers anyway, I believe the Daily Telegraph, he said because uh, he was walking on the opposite side of the street, right. so the Essex Wharf side of the street. And the body was across the street. Like I said, he initially thought it was a tarpaulin. Um, He walked into the middle of the road. And then as he got closer, he saw that it was the figure of a woman. Uh, He said he then heard the footsteps of a man going up Buck's Row, about 40 yards away, in the direction that he just came from. Um, He said, come and look over here. There's a woman lying on the pavement. And then him and Paul uh, said uh, they both took hold of the woman's hands, which were cold and limp. And... uh, Cross says, I, I believe she's dead. He touched her face, um, according to his inquest testimony through the papers. Um, he said, which felt warm. Her face felt warm. Paul uh, supposedly put his hand on her chest and said, I think she's breathing, but very little if she is. And uh, then they decided to go fetch a policeman. They, neither man noticed that the throat was slashed because it was too dark.
0: The way that Cross approached Paul well there's there's all sorts of strange things going on with cross in my opinion him even um approaching Mary Nichols as she lays on the street uh, while he's uh, by his own admission running late for work is interesting um, that that or at least once he find once he realizes that it's a person laying on the ground that he would uh, choose to investigate further secondly is When Paul approaches from behind, he walks towards Paul, meeting him in the street, making Robert Paul nervous enough to believe that maybe Cross was going to mug him. And it wasn't until um, Cross got directly at Paul that uh, Cross put his hand on Paul's shoulder and brought uh, Paul's attention to the body line in the street. Now, there's a contradicting evidence as far as who um, went to look for a PC or if they both went together or if it was just Paul who, who went to look for a PC. Because Paul's <clears throat> excuse me um, interview before he gave his inquest testimony in, in Lloyd's newspaper uh, said that he left cross with the body and went on his own to fetch a constable. But then Meisen's testimony says that he was approached by both of them. Is that correct?
3: No, he says um, that he was approached by Cross.
0: He said he was approached by Cross. <clears throat> and, and, um, and so there's some confusion there as to who went, who went where to look for the police officer. And, and then also I have this question as to with the timing, as far as how the timing is concerned, Cross claims that he heard who we assume to be Neil approaching on his beat, but yet went the other direction to find a police officer, but then you have Neil who claims that he didn't see anybody in the street at all. How is it that Cross is able to not... Well, there's there's many questions I have. One, how is Cross able to not able to realize that Paul was uh, walking 40 yards behind him on this deserted street until after he discovers the body of of Mary Nichols? But at the same time, claim to hear PC Neal approaching on his beat. And then, if Cross did leave to fetch a police officer, why? Did Cross go in the opposite direction of the police officer he knew was coming, and why does PC Neil Times seem to, you know, rule out Cross and Paul being on Bucks Row at at three forty-five in the morning?
3: Personally, I think that Neil was uh, covering his backside in this. I think that um, he was either cooping or he he was. Uh, not derelict of duty, but he, he, he probably wasn't keeping the beats as strictly as he should have.
0: That's kind of what I think as well.
3: Yeah, I, I, the, the, the mere fact that he says that he, he felt her upper body, or he felt her arm, excuse me, not her upper body, he felt her arm and says she was warm, and then 15 minutes later, Dr. Llewellyn um, says that her body, her, her hands and wrists were cold, and I just can't see how in 15 minutes we go from quite warm to cold. And then if we look back on what um, they told when Meisen made his testimony, let me look here for a second. Meisen says that when he went, that the, no, when it was George, uh, excuse me, when it was Cross, Cross says that having felt one of the deceased woman's hands, he found it cold. Well, there's a discrepancy right there. What's Neil talking about? Her hands and wrists and her upper arm, or her, um, her arms are quite warm. Something's not kosher here.
0: And then you have uh, Mizen saying that when he was approached to be alerted about um, the the body in Bucks Row, right. he was told that he was wanted by a fellow police officer right. in Bucks Row. Yeah. Now, that, that uh, is, was disputed by cr- both Cross and Neal in the inquest. Cross by saying he didn't tell Meisen that he was wanted by another constable. Neil by saying that he didn't see anyone around the body until, uh, until he stumbled upon it on his beat. So you have uh, Meisen's Misen, uh, inquest testimony seeming to, to indicate that Neil came upon the body at the same time Cross and Paul were there and went and directed them to find another constable.
1: Well, for me, I I think, you know, for me, just on that part, Meisen might just be confused with all all the events that happened. He probably got the story very quickly from Cross and Paul when they came upon him. And, uh, you know, he already found Neil there, so he probably assumed Neil was already there, you know, when he saw his light being flashed. Um, Because they even asked Cross... um, you know, uh, if if he uh, told him that, like the uh, if if uh, another constable wanted him in Bucks Row, and Cross said no, he didn't see another policeman in Bucks Row, which goes back to your early point, Jonathan, about footsteps. I don't I don't think Cross or Paul heard footsteps either. I think they were well away before any of that happened.
0: as, as, far, as far as Cross it, claiming that um, he he heard a policeman approaching. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I I, I I don't I don't even believe that. Only because he took the time necessary to stop uh, Paul, and if if he had heard a policeman, I think he would have stopped and contacted him as well.
3: Yeah, R- Robert Nally, let me ask you to this. What what do you think about what Mizen said? It's in, the first, it's in the first line of the Times transcription of the inquest. It said, he stated that at a quarter past 4, 4.15 on Friday morning, he was in Hanbury Street. And a man passing said, you are wanted in Baker's Row, which undoubtedly means Buck's Row. From 3.45 to 4.15, it doesn't take a half hour to get from Buck's Row to, to, uh, Baker, to Hanbury Street.
1: It doesn't, but once again, that, that contradicts uh, the Daily Telegraph, which has it at quarter to 4.00. And, ah. uh, uh y- but it's p- it's pretty clear from uh, everyone else who is on the scene, and uh, given Mizen's duties, uh, you know, to uh, go fetch uh, help at Bethnal Green Police Station and and go for an ambulance, uh, that he was on the scene before four o'clock.
2: Right. And that's exact. Yeah. I, I just think you know we're we're at the limits of having to, um get our facts quote in quotes our facts um from newspaper reports at the time and i think it's just we can't um necessarily believe everything you read and so i think it is just a simple transcription error of the difference between a quarter past and a quarter till
0: right i kind of i kind of agree with you there now um again based on newspaper accounts back to what robert uh, asked me um Cross had apparently made the statement while viewing Polly's body in the mortuary that he heard a policeman coming, but instead of waiting for the officer to arrive at the scene, they went off in search of a policeman instead. Um, That's according to the Times. Um, But then he contradicts that when he uh, appears at the inquest.
3: Let me throw this up for everybody. Does anyone find Charles Cross's behavior suspicious that night or that morning? Excuse me?
2: I Allie? guess you would have to specify which behavior. Jonathan mentioned earlier why would he have gone to and you know something about why would he have gone to investigate a tarpaulin in the street? And well, I can I,
0: understand why he would investigate a tarpaulin in the street, in the street, to see if there was anything of value underneath it. Exactly. But, but I'm saying that once he realized that, quickly realized that it was a person lying on the ground, why would he investigate that scenario further? Yeah. Yeah. If you
2: saw a woman lying prostrate and prostrate, not your, you know, prostrate in the street, wouldn't you? If check? I was
0: in an uh, a neighborhood that was crawling with homeless and 10,000. And, and, and prostitutes uh, 10,000 homeless. And drunks? No, I would not. If I I would continue merrily on my way to work. Uh, although, although see, cro-
1: there's a difference cross- between
2: lying asleep and sprawled in the street. And those two things, if you've ever seen a homeless person sleeping and someone passed out unconscious, there is a very different lay to their bodies you know homeless people don't just you know sprawl themselves out in the middle of a thoroughfare, a sidewalk or a, or a whatever and i think that you know if you've seen someone out there's a difference to the body that makes it very easy to recognize the difference between a homeless person sleeping in the street and you know something going on and it may just be as simple as that he saw a down woman and went to her aid
1: and we, almost, we also must probably uh, surmise that Bucks Row was a usual traveling route for uh, Charles Cross on his way to work. So he probably went down Bucks Row every morning uh, at around this time right. and uh, wasn't used to seeing anybody or anything in the street. And so he probably found it unusual. Which was worthy of investigation.
3: Good points.
0: Would you agree, Robert, that it was probably Paul's uh, normal route to work as well? They had both been living at their same residences for quite a number of years um, before yeah, it, 1888, it, and they were both car men. Right. So wouldn't you surmise that they both took the exact same route to work every morning? Sure.
1: They sure they probably took similar routes. Absolutely.
0: But yet they were complete strangers to one another until um, this this morning.
1: Yeah, and that could have a lot to do with the timing um, of, of when they actually went to work. As we know, uh, both said at the inquest that they were running late that morning. Yeah, uh, and also their hours, as Carmen would would ch- probably change, maybe from uh, season to season. And um, so, yeah.
0: Oh, back to Howard's point about Neil's timing, there's this issue of him leaving his cape at the uh, slaughterman's warehouse. When Meisen, after Meisen is alerted to the body in Buck's Row and he uh, meets up with PC Neil, there are two workmen standing alongside Neil viewing the body. This isn't Cross and Paul who uh, continued on their way to work. But it's to the two slaughtermen who uh, were alerted to the body, the, the murder having taken place. There's there's some confusion as to how these men were alerted to uh, the murder occurring, and Neel's leaving his cape with them, and then either he went back to retrieve his cape and brought them with him, or he sent another constable along to get. Retrieve, again, it has to do with how long the body was lying in Buck's Row before it was discovered by, by Charles Cross. How was PC Neal in fact keeping to his 12 to 15 minute uh, beat route um, that night? Well, his, his,
1: was a 30, his was a 30 minute route. No, that, that
0: was Thane. Thane's was a 30 minute route. Um, I believe PC Neil, uh, if he was walking regulation, would have taken only 12 minutes, would have lapped the murder site every 12 minutes. Because
1: Neil said he'd been cause me, Neil yeah, because Neil said he'd been down the street previously a half hour before was the last time he'd. so at 3:15, he'd walked down Buck's Row.
0: Um, where are you seeing that, Robert?
4: Cause it's I, in his I have, I have Thane
0: saying it. that um, he passed the end of Bucks Row at, and Brady Street every 30 minutes. Nothing attracted right. his attention until... This is Thane, though. This isn't Neil. Yeah. Um, nothing attracted his attention until 345. So he would have been... The last time he passed Bucks Row, Thane passed Bucks Row, would have been at 315. But, but I, according to...
1: See, Neil's inquest testimony from the Daily Telegraph says that yesterday morning I was proceeding down Bucks Row Whitechapel going towards Brady Street. There was not a soul about I'd been around there half an hour previously, and I saw no one then. Because we know that most of the metropolitan beats were half-hour beats. Right. By the testimony of uh, other policemen in uh, all the cases. And the city of London, being relatively small, had the short beats of 12 to 15 minutes. Uh, being the one square mile. I, w- I wish Chris Scott was on the show because uh, he had a problem with the two men who showed up initially on the scene that you, m- that you mentioned, Jonathan. Um, because he points out that they're not the Slaughterman, uh, Tompkins and Mumford, uh, who showed up later. Um, he said that they were somebody else. And uh, he was posting that uh, on the casebook message boards uh, a while ago. And I wish he was actually on the show to explain it.
3: The only issue I have with Neil is the fact that he, how he describes her hands, as opposed to Llewellyn. Does anyone believe that within 15 minutes we can go from quite warm to cold? If in fact, if if Neil was there at 3:45, 3:46, 3:50, and then Llewellyn is there 10 to 15 minutes later, we go from quite warm to cold. That's the issue that I have with Neil. Um, Robert, Robert and Allie were correct, though. Uh, In the Times transcription of the inquest material, Neil does say that his beat was a half hour. He had not been around the same he had been around the same place a half hour previous to that and didn't see anyone. But does anyone have a problem with the 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 body heat that she's losing here?
2: Um, I don't. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying is that you know it's your belief that he wasn't actually there and he was trying to cover himself by you know intimating that she had just been killed. A few moments previous to when he arrived,
4: exactly. Um,
2: but you know, when we're—it's so interesting to me. We're talking about such a subjective subject, and such a—you uh, know—if I touch a body and it feels warm to me, it's not like you know he, either one of them whipped out their thermometers and and, and took a, a reading at that point. Um, And, again, it really does, like I said, it depends on, you know, where on your body did they touch you. Like, right now, I'm touching my upper shoulder, upper chest, and it feels unbelievably hot to my absolutely ice-cold, freezing hand. Um, So if, if, if someone touched my chest, my shoulder right now, they would say I feel very, very warm. Whereas someone at the exact same time holding my hand would say I'm freezing because there is such there is a such a dramatic just I mean, you can literally feel the difference in my hands and my chest just by touching. And so it really just depends. I guess I shouldn't be talking about people touching my chest so much. but
3: No, keep going. Keep going. It really (laughs) does
2: just depend where, you know, and and it could have been, you know, two people touching her at the exact same time would have said, oh, she feels very warm, whereas someone coming up later said she feels very cold. So while I totally understand the point that you're making, I just... There's so many variations that come in temperature and just personal, subjective, uh, how you read something that, you know, I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, it may very well be that he was slacking off and was dere- you know, and she had been there for quite a while and he was trying to cover himself. But I don't think that's something that I would, you know, I, I would say it's a possibility. I would necessarily say, ah, you know, this is, this is definitive proof that-, that he was not as, you know up on his beat as he might have been.
0: Okay. Um, and also, I don't know much about um, how the nature of wounds, um, deter- you know, as far as the body temperature and stuff it, uh, after someone died, but um, would it, the fact that she was uh, bleeding, the blood was accumulating underneath her back, and she had an abdominal mutilation... I mean, I, I have no idea. Um, maybe the nature of her injuries affected the cooling of her body, you know, or the temperature that they that the they had felt on the street at the time.
2: I was actually, I was, I was looking up various studies on how quickly. Um, there's like a couple of studies I know that they did with pigs in Poland that I was reading to just try to determine, and you know, obviously temperature. Um, ambient temperature would affect it and I believe from just sort of the certain things that I was reading it basically said you know that it's it's you lose about 1.5 degrees I believe it was Celsius because they were doing it in England per hour so I don't know how rapidly the body would cool I you know what exact temperature it was but um, you know if P- I I don't think it would have cooled in the time between the uh, uh, Neil arriving and um and the subsequent taking of her temperature i don't think it could have cooled literally cooled that dramatically so that someone could have had you know that much of a temperature difference that was actual temperature difference rather than subjective
1: yeah and for me uh, like 1888 taking the temperature of anyone was rather subjective you were touching them with your hand there was no thermometer so Neil was touching her with her hand. Cross and Paul were touching her with their hand. Doctor Llewellyn was touching Nichols uh, with his hand. So uh, it was all
3: subjective. Then again, uh, Robert, Allie, John, uh, Llewellyn was a doctor, so he would have been a little bit more. He would have been more uh, well versed in body temperatures when he made his statement that the body was cold. Correct. So can uh, we? One would, would assume.
1: I, I, one would assume so, but you also have to remember uh, taking the point that he'd just been aroused from his sleep, and that he'd been just been dragged to Bucks Row. Within a matter of minutes, he had to get dressed yeah. and go to Bucks Row, and you know maybe he hadn't woken up. Maybe he was cold. Yeah. You know, maybe his hands were cold.
4: Yeah.
0: Hmm. I'm joining the show. Is Chris Scott? Hi, Chris. Hi there. We're uh, talking about the murder of Polly Nichols. Right. And Robert uh, mentioned your name um, in reference to the two workmen who uh, were... Accomp- who.
4: Oh, Charles Cross.
0: W- no, the ones who... Uh, these were the ones who... Had, this, um, the, let, the ones who Robert, uh, Robert uh, f- uh, get you up to speed.
1: Well, after uh, Cross and Paul, the two people showed up um, before Tompkins, Mumford, and Britain. Uh, yes. The slaughtermen showed up, and you posited uh, something about it on the boards. Wondering who these men were.
4: Yes. I've, as far, I don't think they're named. It was actually one of the... They appeared between the time the body was found and the doctor arrived. Because when, when the doctor arrived, he said that there were two men... That, well, we know, we know that the two workmen who initially found the body had gone. Because they said they went down and uh, they, they basically went off to work. One, one of them went down and found a, found a copper in, in, ba- in Baker's Row, Hanbury Street sort of corner. Yeah. Um, and and then the one who worked for Pickford's went off to work, um, but by the time by the time the doctor got there, he said that the there was a there was a constable and two men, but from the time scheme it was definitely not the three men. It wasn't um, Tomkins Tom Br- Mumford
1: and Britton. Yeah, Brit- Mumford. And no, Britain, they, they haven't
4: come around yet. So from Winter Street. I, I, but well, the reason the reason I posted that was because there's more than one case. Where there are just unnamed hangers about who are there on the scene very early, because the same happened in Mitre Square. Because the, um, the 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 copper said that he um that he sent them off on various errands. He said, you know, there were pe- unnamed people hanging about, and he said, you know, that he sent them off on various errands. One, um, and I always wondered who these people were, because I know I know you see all these you know thrillers where about people either returning to the scene or hanging about at the scene to get some vicarious thrill. But I, I always wonder, there was always this little niggle, whether in fact he did sort of hang about in at, at least one instance and just m- melt into the crowd.
1: Well, it definitely does make you wonder. Yeah. Um, just, just see if he made if, any mistakes. Because, because like you say, most of the people in the Nichols murder uh, are accounted for by name.
4: Yes. So, certainly those who were on the scene early. I mean, there's there's Cross yes. and Paul, who were the first two, and then, as you said, the three slaughtermen. Um, and I think there was... Um, there was all the um, sort of uh, rather dubious business there. But I, I, th- I think there was a very, very, possibly a very, very minor cover up in that case because the, um, I can't remember his name, the copper who left his cape at the slaughterhouse. Or his yeah, cloak. PC Neil. Yeah, because it sounded, if you read between the lines, it very it sounded very much as though he was sort of in there. It sounded as though, you know, he, he was, uh, especially on a perhaps a not very pleasant night i know it wasn't winter time but um it sounded as though he'd been in there having like a cup of tea or maybe something a bit stronger but didn't want it to come out
3: right he was cooping that's what they call it over here chris yeah
4: yeah yeah he was you know and and, uh, in the light of what had happened i mean i think he would obviously he'd have been severely criticized if he was supposed to be on a beat and wasn't and um, i mean it's pure speculation i've got no evidence at all but um he obviously knew the guys well enough to entrust them to leave his, um, his cape there anyway, presumably for safekeeping until he'd finished his beat, and then he could just go back and get it. And I mean, it might have been entirely innocent. It's just one of those little niggly things that, um, you know, I think you get used to you know reading stuff about the Ripper, but it's, it's a very fine line between reading an account and thinking, now, is there hinting at something? And then going to the other extreme and building, you know, castles in the sky on, on no foundation.
1: Right, right but it's, it's it's one of those small little points that, as you say, oh, crop up from time to time that you wish you
4: knew more about. Exactly.
3: And it's not the first time that two men have been seen at the scene of the crime afterwards, like in Mitre Square with Bleckens Cop. Exactly. And in Burner Street with a Broad-shouldered yeah. Man and, um, yeah.
4: Yeah, I, th- these three, I think these three instances
3: yeah, the,
4: of that. Well, the the, where the, the broad shouldered man, i mean, that was slightly before, if um, you know the timing is right. Um, but there are certainly at least two instances that come to mind. Without me sort of looking at notes and stuff, I remember ages ago posting this thread saying, you know, that there were various accounts of these sort of unnamed people who seemed to be on the scene very, very quickly. You know, within minutes. Not not. Not for an hour, but you know, they were there pretty much. Hello? Yes. They were there there sort of pretty much, you know, uh, uh, just about the time it happened. And it always, I mean, they might have been purely innocent passers by. I mean, we all know, um, it always amazes me, like, you know, reading um, the the accounts about the Kelly murder. I remember saying this in, in, in the book, but it's from our modern perspective, it seems amazing how busy. The streets of Whitechapel were at what we would consider to be very unsociable hours. I mean, the town where I live, if you go out, you know, out of my house at, at one o'clock, half past one in the morning, you won't see a soul. I mean, it's absolutely dead. There's not a light in a window. All the streets are deserted. But, you know, if you read not only the Kelly one, but I mean, you know, these women will walk in the streets at half one, half two. You know, some of the residents of Miller's Court, they, you know, they were in at one o'clock and out at half past one and back at three. And you think, what on earth are you doing? Right. I no, know, even,
1: even in a secluded uh, street like Bucks Row where Nichols was found murdered, we have both Cross and Paul in the yes. same dark street at 20 to 4 in the morning.
4: Yes. Wondering I Wondering about each other. I know, obviously, they were, you know, a, a lot of the people who worked in the East End, from the nature of the work they did, would have had to leave. As, as was mentioned, um, you know, in passing, what to do with, with, with Annie Chapman, that, that um, a lot of people had to leave for work very, very early in the morning.
3: Chris, um, can I ask you a question while I have you here? This is Howard. Um, hi. H- how are you doing, buddy? Have, have you ever done or has anyone ever done a census report of the people that lived on Bucks Row during that year?
4: Yes, I have done. I posted it on the old I, boards.
3: Yeah, I thought you did.
4: Yeah, because it, it was mainly because I was looking for, you know, well, people we knew like Mrs. Green and Walter Perkins and all that. And I thought, well, while I'm doing it, might as well do the whole damn lot. So it, it is on the old boards <laughs> somewhere. I think I did one for 1881 and 1891. Okay. Because uh, I was doing, at the time, I was doing, because I did the Miller's Court ones. There's there's no, I mean, to me, there was no earthly point in doing, like, the whole of Hanbury Street. But I, I think at one stage I did 29 Hanbury Street and, like, two doors either side. I did from 25 to to uh, 31 or 33 or whatever. But that, that was some time ago. But they were on the old board somewhere.
1: And for people... That would be, it, and for people, i just sorry to interrupt, Howard, but for people visiting the casebook, um, your Bucks Row Census Report for 1881 and 1891, uh, Chris, is, is listed in the official documents section. So it's is not it? on the message boards yet. Yeah, oh, it's right. in the official no. documents section.
4: Oh, that's good, because I assumed it had gone, you know, when we had the crash earlier this year, I assumed it had gone off into the ether.
1: No, it's still there in the official documents. Oh, so
4: excellent. Excellent. Excellent for there, everybody to there, look up. There was should be one... On
3: should be on the casebook desk with it, which everyone should have that's listening,
4: but go ahead, yes, yeah, yes, it should be on that
3: um
0: w- one thing that uh we i don't believe we've mentioned uh with Charles Cross is the fact that his name wasn't even charles cross
4: no it was Le- it was lechmere uh,
0: which uh was the name of his stepfather that's right, who was uh, p c yeah Th- Thomas
4: cross. <clears throat> the uh, the only the only odd thing about that was that um, there's only one um, occasion in the official record because I sort of picked up you know I can't remember who did the original work who was it who
0: that was Michael uh, Connor
4: that's right Conner? yes it's Mike Connor yeah 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 um, and I sort of just came in really on his tail you know on his coat tails and cleared up a few odds and ends really um, the only thing that struck me as odd was that um, in all the official mentions that I could find, including his, um, his certainly his marriage um, and all of the censuses bar one, he's down as Lechmere, there's only one instance I found, which off the top of my head I think was the 1881 census, where he actually used the name of Cross. So it, it, it did strike me as a bit odd that somebody who apparently quite consistently, certainly got married under the name of Lechmere, um, that it seemed odd that so on that one occasion he would choose to name, you know, use the name Cross.
0: Um, wasn't he still residing with his mother and stepfather at the time that that census had him listed you know, as Charles Cross?
4: I would have to look up. I, I honestly can't remember. It's it's a quite a few months since I did that. Right. Um, I'd have to look up my notes. Um, I think he probably was.
0: I think it was in the 1871 census that you had him listed uh, as... Um, as Charles Cross, yeah. along with uh, a couple other siblings, and, and uh, maybe Robert, if Robert's on the boards right now, could could verify that for us. But, but- of
4: course, I think the other thing you have to remember, because this has come up in my you know my researches into my own family, because my my grandfather was an absolute nightmare for a, a, you know any genealogy. That um, the 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 whole business of of changing or using a different surname then was much more casual i mean there, there was no there was no question of somebody of um, charles cross's sort of social class actually go, going through the rigmarole of changing his name by a deed poll so i mean there's no official as far as i know there's no official record of it it would it would just be a purely you know he would say to people i'd rather you know from now on i want to be known as um, and, and I think the – I mean, now, you can still do that now, as I understand it, under English law. You can choose to call yourself – you know, if I wanted to say to my friends, right, from now on, I'm going to be called Fred Bloggs. So I'm quite entitled to do that. But if it came to an official document, like applying for a passport or getting married, I would have to revert to my legal name. And I can only change that by going to deed poll. Now,
3: And I think a lot of people do that
2: when they're in blended families where they'll just choose to be identified – yeah, socially as it, it's, even in marriages, you know, you might be choose exactly. to identify socially as the last name but I do also exactly. want to point out that while Michael Connor has recently um, been a, a large proponent of the uh, Letchmere Cross um, idea that there was a little bit of a fur, so I do think it's worth pointing out that um, Derek Osborne also has written about this several years
3: oh, yes, past yes, in, yes. Um,
2: in Rip several different up. scenes yeah
4: um, yeah, so
0: As far as uh, the Lechmere uh, name, Allie? Yes,
2: yeah, so, uh, right. uh, the whole Cross Lechmere uh, and possibility of Cross actually being the Ripper was all yeah. previously also written about by uh, Derek Osborne in um, Ripper Ripperana and yeah. uh, some others.
4: I think they came to this... It was, it was a case... I don't think they... They they colluded or collaborated or colluded. So no, it was, it was. It was they came to. They came yeah. to it independently.
2: Right and totally yeah. separate of each other. Yeah.
4: That's right.
0: Now his uh, true uh, name wasn't made an issue, as far as we know. In the inquest, the officials didn't seem either too concerned or they were just completely in the dark um, that he was using his stepfather's name yeah. while he appeared at the inquest.
4: I've got, I've got, actually, I've got my notes here. His, yes, his birth name was Charles Allen Lechmere, but he was born in 1849. Um, and he married, um, he's the only, where are we? He born in 1849. Uh, he married in 1871, St. George East. He married Elizabeth Bostock under the name Charles Allen Lechmere. Um, his mother's maiden name was Rolson it was the only, yes you're right the, this, the one census under which he w- went under the name of Cross was 1861 61, okay a w- a which t- his, mother, his mother who was um, uh, Maria Lechmere, by that time she'd remarried and she, uh, her name was Maria Louisa Cross her, f- her husband and Charles Cross's uh, stepfather was Thomas Cross
0: who, who was a police constable. So it's not unusual, you, you, would you think, that his, that he could use the name Cross yeah. when um, he's being interviewed by the police after the discovery well, of Mary Newell's body and wondered, uh, appearing at the inquest and all this, on and on and on, when he, he's using um, the name Cross. They, they didn't really think it anything. Just, it just
4: it. seemed such a long time back. I mean, he's, he, he's in the 1851 census as Charles Cross, aged one. Um, but I mean, that's when his parents were together. 1861, he's down as uh, Charles Cross. 1871, he's down as Charles Lechmere, because by that time he's married, he's got his own household in Mary Ann Street. 1881, uh, James Street, St. George, uh, he's down as Charles Allen Lechmere with his wife Elizabeth, and they've got by that time f- uh, four children. So from 1861, you know, it's a 27 year gap. Uh, I just wondered if he used his name Cross because of the police connection, because the, one, the, the non-blood relative, in other words, his stepfather who, from whom he got the name Cross, was a policeman. And I, ju- I just wonder if he was still a serving policeman.
0: Um, another thing that, that someone had mentioned, maybe it was before the show started, is, is about Holland. She was apparently brought up on some charges, the old Bailey, in the years uh, after the murder of Mary Nichols. During that, that year. Oh,
4: it this, was in eighteen
3: eighty eight? Yeah, Nina found it. Twice. Oh right. Well actually it's in the a, it's actually in the A to Z.
4: Oh, okay. Is this Emily Emily Holland?
3: Yes. Ellen right. Holland, yeah. Yeah. Or Emily. Or Nellie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like what
0: what what are the details of that? Do we know,
3: Howard? Uh offhand, no, not right now. I, I don't know all the details about it. Let me just add this about this Charles Cross. I, I, I sort of want to make him suspicious. What do, you think, <laughs> what, what do you think about a guy that's walking down the street, is so interested in a tarpaulin that he can't take to work, sees a, the, the body of a woman that he is very interested in, but he makes it on time to work? It's, it's, it's like all of a sudden he went from this good Samaritan to being someone who's conscientious making it back to work. Does anybody make anything about
4: that? I don't Allie? know if the tarpaulin thing would make him a good Samaritan. I mean, he was probably after the main chance. And, you know, if he if he was in the haulage business, the tarpaulin would come in very useful and potentially, you know, he could get a few bob for it. Yeah.
2: Okay. And I agree. And once basically he's alerted the police to the presence, his, you know, necessity of being there is no longer there. And if he's at all worried about keeping his job which i'm sure the vast majority of people are after you know the police had arrived and his you know need of being there was done he probably would have hauled ass to work and i mean i know i would have i mean i don't know how much you know i found a dead woman in the street is really gonna cut it when there's 500 people lined up ready and willing to take your job
4: yeah i think he said
1: he was late already
4: I think we've also, I I think we've got to avoid looking at this with the wisdom of hindsight in that this was, although the Martha Tabron murder had only been a few weeks before, this was the, you know, the first of the canonical. So there wasn't all the, all the hoo-ha and the frenzy and the fear and the horror and all that. This was the first one. So, you know, okay, it would have been a horrific thing. I mean, but he didn't know as, you know, they didn't know to take her to the mortuary about the the abdominal injuries. I mean, but, but still to find a woman with a throat cut. Um, you know, horrendous though it was, um, I think it's a mixture of it didn't have the full, like full-blown Ripper aura that the later ones had.
3: Yeah, ironically, Chris, by that time the, the press had already picked up that there was a scheme going on, though.
0: Yeah, it was considered the third murder. Yeah.
4: Oh yes, yeah, no, I agree with that. I think, uh, uh, but what I'm saying was it, it didn't have the I think the, at that time, I mean, even I think even in the minds, although it was obviously in their interest to, you know, to blow it up into a story as a modern newspaper would, that the um, I mean, it, it's not that easy, even for a sort of modern student of the case to to draw any firm links between, say, the Nichols murder and the Tabra murder, let alone the Emma Elizabeth Smith one. And that was some months previous so really your own i say only i'm not denigrating the victims obviously but at that stage you're talking about two possible murders which may be linked i know they said the third one but i mean i think anybody with an ounce of sense can see that the i'm not denigrating anybody who does argue the smith case but in in my opinion i can't see any, any reason whatever to link the Emma elizabeth smith attack with any of the later murders um so I think you know if when it happened, let's say the Eddowes murder. I know that was maybe a bad example, but the because that was the second one that night. But when you were into the full, full, full-blown sort of Ripper frenzy, once you get into September, October, then you know, and anybody found on the streets, you know, it's it's police straight away get the medics. You know, all the top brass are called from Scotland Yard. Whereas this was finding a body on a back street in Whitechapel, basically.
0: And as I. Uh, said at the beginning um, this was uh, the le- the start of the leather apron scare yes which which added a uh, uh, added dimension to the murders as far as the press yeah. were concerned oh
4: I, f- I found uh, I found an account today i hadn 't seen before i 'm going to be posting it on the about uh, supposedly the the arrest of it wasn 't Pizer because it 's after he was he was clear, but there was a an unnamed man in a very sort of um, very similar description, and uh, I've, I've only found the account of him being arrested and, and, and them starting to question him. I haven't found any follow-up yet. But anyway, that's a, that's a by-the-by.
0: And this is um, before the the uh, identification of Pizer as leather Yeah, apron?
4: it's our, it's our, it's after the Pizer business.
3: Oh, okay. When did the Pizer business start up?
4: Pardon, um, excuse me,
3: pardon, pardon me, the, the leather apron business start up.
4: Well, I've, I've, that's one I remember posting that because I was, I was asking if anybody knew when the first actual mention. Um, uh, I've, I, I don't remember ever seeing a, a mention of it before the Chapman murder. It seemed to sort yeah, of yeah. swell up, swell up in the few days after the Chapman murder. Well,
3: yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. Yeah,
4: yeah because that. all that all that all that Pisa business was about the eleventh of twelfth, you know, about three or four days. Right.
3: Yeah, that's what I had thought, too. I thought that the leather apron scare began after the Chapman murder, but you learn something yeah. every day.
4: Yeah. Although
1: I believe PC uh, Thick might have been looking for Pizer specifically, though uh, I think it's mentioned uh, as early as September 7th um, in the official files. Really? This was oh, really? after the Chapman wow. murder. He wow. was looking for Pizer specifically.
0: Right. You're, well, be- you're well, be- right, before, Cha- before
4: Chapman was killed? Yes. That's interesting.
0: Yeah, there is. Um, That's why everyone yeah, should listen the, to the the show. The Weekly Report of September 7th, 1888, uh, by Davis, Acting Superintendent of J Division. No information to the point of the offender can be obtained. A man named Pizer, alias Leather Apron, has been in the habit of ill-using prostitutes in various parts of the metropolis for some time past. And careful inquiries have been made to trace him, but without success. Oh
4: right. And that was on the seventh. Yeah. So that's the day before Chapman was murdered. Yes, and see,
1: I've, I've always thought that um, there could have been more than one person known as leather apron because it's such a generic term.
4: I'm sure there was, and there, there, there's I, a lot of there's a lot of yeah, trades that would have worn it.
1: Exactly, and I'm sure that they were looking for a lot of people with the leather apron.
3: Yeah. <laughs> It's right. four yeah. million eight four 4,800,000 people in the metropolis in 1888.
4: Exactly.
0: Now, um, do we want to talk about Leather Apron for a little while, or uh, save that for another show? What do you think, guys?
4: Oh, that's another show. Okay. Could I just add one thing very quickly? Because, again, sure. it's, one, it's one of these loose ends, and it's just these intriguing little... Um, and this is this Julius Lipman character, because I've always wondered who, who he was. Because he's the only other person I've specifically, the only other named individual that I, but it was so long after, and I can't find any contemporary reference or any reference between the murders and his death, which was what, 12 years later. There's just this really sm- small, laconic bit in the paper on, in uh, October 1900, saying that, you know, he died pretty much of starvation and neglect. And that, uh, you know, his life had gone downhill since he was um, arrested and questioned by the police as being leather apron in 1888. Now the only, right. Julius, Lip- the only Julius Lipman, I- it said in the, um, in the newspaper report, which appeared, both. By- I found it in American ones as well, verbatim. I, f- I found it originally in the News of the World, which is a British paper, but I've also found it in various American papers, at the, you know, within a, a couple of days. And it says he was a slipper maker, doesn't give an age. And uh, I found one Julius Lippman, uh, who was a slipper maker, but he was born and living in Birmingham. Um, uh, certainly can't find a death of uh, a Julius Lippman around that period in, 18, in 1900. So it's all a, you know, a bit of a mystery.
1: Hmm.
4: Hmm. One of those things that Chris, still needs to be sorted out. Anyway, go ahead, Howard. Chris,
3: excuse me, uh, is Julius L-I-P-P-M-A-N?
4: It varies. In the original News of the World one, it was just 1P1N. One one it was L-I-P-M-A-N. Oh, okay. Uh, but I found various... Uh, I found double P-M-A-N. I found L-I-double P-double N. Okay. I thought, oh, God, we've got another Dean shoots on our hands. Yeah. Not quite as bad as that, but...
0: Well, we covered a lot of ground, Chris, before you graciously agreed to join us today is there anything uh you'd like to say chris uh about the Nichols murder that intrigues you or is some questions you may have
4: really just the normal ones i mean I, I find i still find it um again i think it ties up with this you know a, a, a avoiding hindsight i mean i think one of the most often co- asked questions about the the nickels murder is, is is how the abdominal injuries could be missed until you know she was taken to the mortuary and and stripped for examination um again this sort of sort of reinforces in my mind the i won't say lax attitude but the less um the less frenzied attitude you know towards a, a body being found on the streets of Whitechapel. i think you know because although the press was saying oh this is the third one and whatever i think probably in the police mind you know initially this was a you know another lady of the night found dead on the streets but but you know by the time you compare it say to the stride one or the Edo's one and see how quickly they sort of swing into action right, right. um and obviously you know the uh, the police coverage you know the extra manpower had been brought in and all this that and the other and the structures were there you know within their the capabilities they then had but for, you know for the doctor to arrive and sort of make what must have been a fairly cursory examination on the pavement you know to actually miss the abdominal mutilations and then find out and have to be called back to the the mortuary um, I think it's I think it's too easy, you know, from us from our armchairs in you know 2008. So you know, oh how careless or how remiss or whatever. Um, because although um, you know that type of violent death was actually surprised. Uh, I, I, I can't remember somebody somebody said that there was no murder recorded in Whitechapel for the previous year or something. On one source, I can't remember who it was, but which I think is stretching it a bit. Um, but I think this type of sort of violent sort of frenzied attack, I think, was still something very, very new. Well, and, uh, and I
1: think uh, to further that, Chris, uh, it appears that the police, as you said, not only learned uh, because their investigations seemed to get uh, more complex as they went along with this series exactly. of murders. But even after 1888, I'm sure that uh, finding a body was handled much differently than, uh, let's say, the Nichols murder.
4: Oh, I'm sure it was. I mean, they, they obviously, you know, within the sort of technological and scientific restrictions that they had, you know, with, with regard to treating a crime scene, um, I'm sure they learnt object lessons. I mean, I was, I was typing up some stuff today, which was about the Coles murder. And there, you know, again, it was, I, I was thinking, well, you know, they, the way they sort of swung into action and they were there within minutes. Um, and I thought, well, you know, that's, that's different from, you know, the, the early murders.
3: Right, Chris. But do you think that do you think that the police learned something from the Nichols murder uh, that they they uh, implemented
4: no, in the future? No, not not per se. I think they learned something from the first two in conjunction because I think it was, I mean, it was only just over a week to the Chapman murder, and that I think it was the Chapman one that really made them sit up and take notice and think, look, something very odd is going on here, because the first one. Um, as I said, it was from, from a, purely from a sort of methodological point of view. I mean, it's, I, I still, personally, I don't think that either Tabram or, certainly not Emma Elizabeth Smith, but I don't think that Tabram died by the same hand as any of the canonical five anyway. Um, I, think the, I think the soldier... Um, you know it sounds like an Agatha Christie but I think the soldier did it I think you know he was seen standing at the end and waiting for his mate and all that but you know I can't put a name to him can't prove it but that's just my gut feeling but I think it was at the time of the Chapman one I think the police sort of sat up uh, metaphorically and said you know look some this this is odd something very strange going on here. we and then obviously as they went on and then the double event um, you know by that time it was like in full swing so, I think they learned. It, it doesn't doesn't mean that they obviously that they nailed him, but I think that's more down to the I don't know the technical limitations. I mean, obviously, you know there are a hell of a lot of things that the police can do now they couldn't do then. I mean that's that goes without saying. but I, you know it still makes you wonder, you know if 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 he killed today, you know it's an, it's an old pile of question, you know if he killed today, would we catch him? I don't think there's any guarantee that we would
1: no uh, it seems we're no better today at catching serial killers than we were in 1888 if you look at it just purely from a statistical point of view
4: oh yes and also the fact that the vast majority well i won't say the vast majority because i'm not that i'm not uh, certainly not an expert on serial killers and i know i know some do have previous offenses i mean you know there's the the typical profile is you know being cruel to animals when young and being interested in arson and all this So maybe some of them, I I mean, I don't know what percentage of serial killers have previously non-lethal offenses, so that their, for example, their fingerprints or nowadays their DNA would be on record. I mean, I I don't know whether that's a large or a small percentage. But obviously in Jack's day that doesn't apply anyway, because neither of those were available.
1: No.
0: Um, All right, guys, Um, I'm going to have to wrap it up.
1: I just want to correct one uh, mistake I made uh, when Please. we were talking about the cape that was left. Um, it wasn't PC Neil; it was PC Misen, whom Cross and Paul came upon. It was his oh, cape right, that right. was left at the slaughterhouse. I just wanted to correct that oh, right. for everybody it listening.
0: It was Misen's cape. Who, it was uh, Misen's yeah. cape. Yeah. Right, well, I made the same mistake. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, well, I thank everyone for being on the show today.
4: Well, thanks for having us.
0: That was RipperCast, episode 25, Still Warm, The Murder of Marianne Nichols. I want to thank Chris Scott for being able to join us today at such short notice. His name was brought up, and luckily I was able to get in touch with him via Skype and have him on the show to share some of his thoughts about the murder of Polly Nichols. I also want to thank the co-hosts that were on the show today, Robert McLaughlin, Allie Ryder, and Howard Brown. We are a weekly podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel Murders available at the iTunes Music Store in the podcast section, keyword Jack the Ripper, or online at www.rippernet.com. If you have any questions or comments for myself or any of the co-hosts or guests that appear on the show, feel free to send them to me at rippernet at mac.com. And as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.